everyone and welcome back to another book podcast. I can't believe I get to say this, but this week we had the most amazing guest in the office, the incredibly lovely Kate Moss. I was able to talk to her about her fantastic new novel, The Ghost Ship, which came out last week on the 6th of July, as well as her life in the industry, from the first novels she ever had published to the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. It was an absolute delight talking to Kate about her experience as a writer, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. As per usual, a quick disclaimer. Despite any connections to the publishing industry, all opinions on books and biscuits are completely our own here at Another Book Podcast. So let's dive into this week's episode. So hello, Kate Moss, and welcome to Another Book Podcast. Thank you so much for coming in today. I know the trains were a bit of a disaster, but you made it in and we're so grateful that you are able to come in. Um, so I guess we'll just dive straight into um, sort of your life in publishing because there's so much to talk about there. So with your first fiction and non-fiction books, which is Eskimo Kissing and Becoming a Mother, were those your first kind of attempts at writing or had you written before, like dabbled in it a bit? Well, it was very interesting. When I had my overnight success at the grand old age of 45 uh, with a novel called Labyrinth, it was my fifth book. And I look back on the, the four books I'd written before that as I was a reader who wrote, rather than being a writer. Um, and when I, uh, that book went rather global, um, much to my astonishment, uh, I started to be asked questions like this about writing. And I said with great confidence, no, I never really did write. Uh, you know, when I was at school, it was all about music. And then girls I'd been at school with uh, started to get in touch and say, that's complete rubbish. You were always writing. You, don't you remember? And then they would remember some terrible play I'd written for the third form or, you know, things like this. So I did always write, except it wasn't the thing that I defined myself by. It was mm -hmm. music and it was reading. And uh, the reason I started to be a writer, um, you know, with, with capital letters, was I was pregnant with my second child, who is now 30. <laughs> and um, I was having lunch with an agent friend, uh, a man called Mark Lucas at the Soho Agency now, um, who had been a friend through publishing, and I'd been in publishing for a long time. But I'd never actually bought a book from him, uh, but we got on. And we were sitting having lunch, and I said, you know, it's so frustrating, Mark. The book I wanted to read when I was pregnant first time around uh, wasn't there, and now I'm pregnant again. It's still not there, the, the book that I need. And he essentially challenged me, and he said, why don't you stop moaning and write it? <laughs> and... We tell the next bit of the story differently. Of course. <laughs> I am a storyteller and my version is better than his. Of course. <laughs> he says it was a week or so later. But in my version, the next day, yeah. <laughs> he rang up and he said, I have a contract for you with Virago to write that feminist pregnancy book. And that was the book that became Becoming a Mother. Amazing. And I've always been one to give it a go. So I hadn't been intending to write, but I thought, well, I will. I'll give it a go. It's true. I, I think there's a gap for the sort of book I wanted to read. And then because of that, a, an editor in a fiction publishing company, Hodder and Stoughton, uh, said, you, it's very narrative, your writing, and the, the thing that comes to life are the characters. Have you ever thought about writing fiction? And again, I said, no, not really. And he said, well, do you want to give it a go? So I wrote two really not very good books, Eskimo Kissing and Crucifix Lane. Um, partly they weren't good, although I'm proud to have finished them because finishing a book is hard, mm -hmm. is because I was sitting on my own shoulder all the time. I was all the time looking at, thinking, oh, that's not very good, or that's not very literary, or that's not very this. I didn't just, I wasn't writing from the outside, the inside out. I was mm -hmm. looking in. And so it was only with Labyrinth that I became a writer. 
Interesting. Okay. I mean, that's so, it's fascinating that you say, you know, from, from the inside out, because um, we had one of our other authors, Grania Murphy on, and she was saying, you know, she starts with a title and that's how she's able to like, get the words out really yes which i yeah because i always thought that the title would be something that would come last but she says that is able to like draw things out of her and that she's able to write the way she is because she's she has yeah, that yeah. kind of pull um and then i guess that kind of leads on to the question of your writing style so i i guess given that you're harsh on your first few books would you say it's changed quite a lot to now when you're writing the ghost ship uh, I yes, I, I would say it had, but I mean, I discovered my writing voice with Labyrinth, um, which published in two thousand and five in the UK and two thousand and six everywhere else in the world. Um, and I think the important thing is for people uh, to understand that their reading voice is not necessarily their writing voice. And it took me a while to discover that. So I read a lot of crime. I read a lot of what is called literary fiction through the Women's Prize for Fiction, obviously. I read a lot of non-fiction history in particular. And I assumed I'd write in one of those areas. Mm -hmm. But it turned out that my skill was for big old-fashioned storytelling, adventure writing, and bringing the past to life. So these were not my areas particularly, yes. but that turned out to be the sort of writer I was. So I would say my writing style from Labyrinth has improved. I've become a better writer, absolutely. But it's the hallmarks of my writing were there in Labyrinth. And I would say they are um, landscape as the main character. Mm -hmm. That all of uh, the books, whether they're my gothic fiction or my uh, historical adventure fiction, ha are happening at a turning point in history. Uh, at the moment at which a completely different story could be told. So with the ghost ship, for example, if the great French king, Henry IV, was not assassinated mm -hmm. in May 1610, then probably there would not have been the French Revolution. The series of events, yeah. yeah. So it's that. So that is the thing. And it's the combination of landscape, history and mystery. And those triangles are where I start. And... Research is very important. It's about animating the past, about how we can look at the past to understand who we are today. Mm -hmm. But more significantly, I do a huge amount of research to build a stage set, essentially. And then I start writing. I know the sort of novel I want to write. I know the way I want the novel to make people feel. I know the real history, but I don't particularly have a plot and I don't have characters. But I know my lead character in The Ghost Ship, for example, is going to be uh, a principled young woman who is a bit of an outsider. And so I start writing Louise and I discover who she is as I write. Interesting. So I guess, you know, that it makes sense, having now read, like, most of your novel, that it's so steeped in history and, like, you just... You can't help but feel as if you're there because you just are so aware of like the understanding of, of what's happening in the tones of the time and everything. And then there's Louise kind of in the centre of it, emerging from it being kind of exactly what you wouldn't expect in that sort of environment, which obviously makes her incredibly interesting. But then I guess if you're, you know, a lover of like reading history, is that like both fiction and non-fiction or just non-fiction history? It, it's both. Um, you know, I'm a, a big admirer of uh, Ken Follett, of Philippa Gregory, uh, back in the day of Mary Grenot, uh, obviously Hilary Mantel, mm -hmm. uh, but mostly non-fiction uh, in history. You know, I'm, I'm curious. 
Yes. That's, I think most novelists are detectives in a way. Mm -hmm. If you write about the past, you're a detective. It's about finding out the texture of life as it might have been lived. And that's what I love to put on the page for people so that they really feel that they are there in, in Paris in May 1610, uh, alongside Louise as the king's carriage is coming into view um, and the rest of the novel is you know set in La Rochelle and Amsterdam but mostly on the high seas mm -hmm. um, so my job as a novelist and a storyteller is to make people feel they are there on that ship or they are there on that corner of that street at that key moment in history and that's uh, I'm, I'm not not ever any of my characters they're not me uh, I don't share characteristics with them. I'm absolutely the the author who is outside looking in yeah. um, as a narrator, really, rather than anything else. I very rarely write in the first person. Ins inspired by yourself, yes, seeing exactly. yourself in a character. Yeah, no. Yes, which, you know, it's... With her kind of, you know, going between all these areas and, like, the fact that it's... Even though it spans time, it's not too big of a jump like you know with the it kind of fast forwards what 10 years uh, or 11 years at the beginning um and I think that when I think of like historical fiction that I often read it is sort of like in the like latest kind of late 1800s kind of early 1900s and so there's so much more information about that time than there is about like the 1600s so then when you kind of have someone that's giving you information alongside giving you this like really interesting plot I just feel like you can just immerse yourself so much more Good. in that world like your imagination is kind of able to like accept the information and wrap itself around the characters a bit more because like there is is slightly more unknown and slightly more mysterious that's the further back you to go. Hear. and of course that is exactly the point that if you feel that you're getting a history lesson then I failed as a mm -hmm. novelist but if you are falling in love with Louise and the other characters and you desperately know what, want to know what's happening to them and you can picture the world through which they're walking that's how you write historical fiction mm -hmm. uh, so that if you like the research is worn very very lightly it's why also I tend to call my writing historical adventure I don't think of myself as a historical fiction writer really uh, because I belong to a tradition of adventure writing and what I mean mm -hmm. by that is that it's epic in its scale. It's big battles, it's big sea voyages, it's big landscapes. Yeah. It's absolutely not the claustrophobia of the court. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not domestic, usually. There are, of course, a lot of domestic scenes and everybody has a home and most people have a family in my stories. Uh, but it's more that the canvas is much bigger than that. And it owes a great deal to... Uh, the 19th century adventure writers like Walter Scott and Ryder Haggard um, and even Jean Plady, actually, uh, you know, some of those uh, much older writers. And watching sort of Louise go from, um, particularly in the beginning when she goes from France to then over to Amsterdam, um, and she has that somewhat seamless transition, but other people that she's travelling with uh, find it harder because they've only ever known France and only ever lived in France. It's just, it's so interesting the way that they like interact with the locals, the way the locals see them. Because, you know, when you think about travelling nowadays, everyone can go anywhere in an hour on a plane and and the interactions with people, like, are, they're more understanding of, oh, they, you know, they don't speak the language and, you know, oh, we can all kind of speak English or, or something like that instead. Whereas they're really trying to sort of fit into the culture and and the culture is just much more vibrant 
when it's like set against sort of the the French sailors that come with them. Absolutely, and it's also um, that thing that uh, the character Gilles, who has grown up in La Rochelle and has never been anywhere else, and then goes to Amsterdam with Louise um, on the ship, they haven't got any idea of what life is like anywhere else <laughs> apart from La Rochelle. So every single thing that they see, from the clogs on people's uh, feet to the weather... Uh, to the food that they eat, uh, to the narrowness of the streets, uh, to the architecture, every single thing is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And they won't know anything about it at all because there aren't guidebooks and there, there isn't the internet yeah. and there's not, you know, <laughs> pictures. Um, so, I mean, I think that is one of the, the things that's a great gift when you write historical adventure is that as long as you've got a character who doesn't know, you can show the reader the world through their eyes. Because obviously someone who's always lived in Amsterdam doesn't get up every morning and go out and go, oh, that piece of architecture is extraordinary, because mm-hmm. they've grown up with it. So you always have to have, find a way to give the reader information that is plausible and has yeah. integrity, I suppose. And as well, like I think the fact that... I, I, I mean, I just love Louise so much, she's my favourite, but she, the fact that she kind of started her life in Amsterdam but as a young child then went to France and then came back to Amsterdam... You know, she then has that kind of, that idea of Amsterdam is like where she was born, but is that her home or is France now her home? And and then when she goes back to Amsterdam, she's then really unsure where her home is, which is, I think, why she has that affinity with the sea so much, because she's felt like that's been her home more than any piece of land. That's That's exactly right. I'm delighted that you could feel that. And also the key thing to say is that Louise Schubert, she is part of a refugee family. Mm-hmm. You know, her uh, grandparents, uh, are uh, who we meet in the very first novel of the series, there, are, there will be four novels in the series, although I've written The Ghost Ship as a standalone, so that anybody who hasn't read Burning Chambers and City of Tears could, can just read The Ghost Ship and get everything they need out of it. Yeah. But if readers who have will obviously get different things as well. But we first meet the Joubert family uh, when her grandparents, Louise's grandparents, are young and meeting, and her father, is, uh, grandfather is part Dutch and part French, and her grandmother is French. And they are caught up in the wars of religion that see them losing everything and having to flee um, after the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in Paris in 1572 and fleeing to Amsterdam. So they are refugees. And that is very significant because it means where is home? Mm-hmm. What, uh, you know, they are a wealthy Huguenot family by now. It looks like everything is settled. Uh, they are living partly in France and partly in Amsterdam. But then because the king is assassinated, they have to run again. And that's mm. it. They'll never go back to France. That's such a, a tense moment when they're trying to, like, flee. And, um, you know, I really... Even though, you know, I, I know that there's, like, a, a book to be had, you know, afterwards and that this is happening at the beginning, I was still, like, so stressed for them <laughs> trying to get out of the of the country and just thinking you know, how that is probably, like, resonates with a lot of people across the world currently yeah. and, and how that's something I can only Standing imagine. Standing at borderlines, not knowing whether you were going to be let through, you're going to stay and be shot or uh, arrested or whatever, you know, these emotions are not different today than they mm-hmm. were then. They're exactly the same emotions. The thing that is so significant about the Huguenot diaspora is that everywhere that accepted the Huguenots in, every country 
that accepted the Huguenots in prospered. So little tiny Holland, because they took so many uh, French Protestants, uh, the Huguenot is just the name for the French Protestants, they became a global superpower because of that, because they opened their borders. It's a tiny country. And because France expelled the Huguenots, uh, the phrase middle class didn't exist then, but essentially we can think of the Huguenots as making up the French middle class Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what they did and the fact that they were people who made money rather than inherited money or worked on the land. And they, because they expelled the Huguenots, France, it bankrupted itself and it became not a world superpower and subsequently it will end up with the French Revolution Mm -hmm. in the 18th century. So... There are many lessons, shall we say, but that is not the point of the book. The book is a novel. It's a swashbuckling, rip-roaring novel, and the point is the characters. If, however, readers bring things they're thinking about in the modern day to their reading of it, then, of course, all to the good. Yes, definitely. And, you know, with the the sea being both... Uh, like a, a dangerous and yet inviting thing is obviously ever-present today as well. Um, but, you know, with with it being its sort of standalone novel and reading it, I, I couldn't help but think of, like, Hilary Mantle, and I've only ever read uh, Wolf Hall, but the, the difference is quite... Uh, enormous almost in in your books Um, because yeah like you said you know it's so concentrated in court uh, in Wolf Hall and like it everything happens like and there is about a million characters and it's you know it's just it's so historical that I I found the line between like historical fiction and history so difficult to kind of pick out whereas in yours I was fully able to understand that the the setting is completely real and that the people are kind of the ideas of what we think but it's and thank you but it's also uh, that I'm not interested in the one percent of people at the top of society Mm -hmm. they're the ones that get written about in history all of the time I'm interested in us yeah. You know, who would we have been if we'd lived then? Um, what kind of courage would we have had to have found in ourselves? And the thing about the sea that's so important in the ghost ship, each of the novels in the series um, is uh, inspired by one of the elements. So, of course, the burning chambers is fire. The second one, the city of tears, is uh, water. Ghost ship, of course, is air. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final one will be earth. And the thing about the sea is that this period, the beginning of the 17th century, is the moment at which Europe is turning its eyes away from Europe and out to the rest of the world. It is the time of exploration. I'm afraid it's the time of European invasion and colonisation. Mm-hmm. And it is a sense of Europe um, is realising how small it is compared to the big horizons. And so, of course, it has to be mm-hmm. uh, a sea novel but more significantly, obviously, it's a pirate novel. Yes. And that is more important than it being a seafaring novel. Yes, well, yes, that just adds the intrigue and the mystery and also the excitement to it, just so much more. And um, I, I have so many more questions uh, about The Ghost Ship and also about your research specifically, because with the other two novels, do you feel like they set you up in terms of research um, for this novel, or did you have to do like a whole new kind of bout of research? The series is um, 300 years. It goes from 1562 to 1862. And I did five years of research before I ever wow. sat down at my desk. So I did all of that research, the big research, the sort of overarching uh, research before I started at all. 
uh, because you need in history to know what happened first and then what happened second before you really have the proper narrative arc. Mm -hmm. But then with each individual book, I do specific new research for that book. So for The Ghost Ship, um, it's the history I had already done. The main piece of research was uh, ships. And the greatest compliment people have been paying me about The Ghost Ship, because it's only only just out, is people have been saying, well, I didn't know you, you sailed. I said, I don't sail at all. <laughs> and I walk beside the sea. I look at the sea, mm -hmm. but I do not want to be in the sea, mm -hmm. and I do not really want to be on the sea. Um, so that was a huge different piece of research, and I spent a great deal of time uh, looking at every uh, ship of that period that I could do. So I live in Sussex, so very close to the Mary Rose in historic dockyard at Portsmouth, uh, the Victory, uh, Nelson's flagship. Uh, visiting Amsterdam, uh, where I had a writing fellowship a couple of years ago, so I know Amsterdam very well. The Maritime Museum there has many, many ships, and uh, my uh, Louise's ship, as it were, uh, is based on uh, a, a mixture of those ships that I've seen and I've walked Amazing. about. And then there's also one extraordinary ship, um, the Vasa, uh, which is in Sweden, and I've only seen that virtually because um, I was doing some of the research, obviously, during lockdown. And it is really important because it was the Swedish king's flagship. And he, like, um, dare I say, some gentlemen, feel they just know best. And the Swedish king thought that he knew better than all the engineers of shipbuilding, of so course. he designed his own ship. <laughs> and unfortunately, he hadn't got uh, the balances right. So as it was on its maiden voyage, it sunk in the harbour, oh in front, full view of everybody. Um, but it meant that it was never wrecked. So it was brought up almost straight away. So it is the most intact 16th century ship that we have. Wow. Um, so that was where my main research was. And then I have a friend who is a retired rear admiral in the Navy, and he gave me a huge amount of homework reading to do, but also taught me about life at sea. And he said one really beautiful thing to me. He said, Kate, you just need to shut your eyes and try to hear the song of the ship. And what he meant by that was the fact that you that, that they're really small. The idea that people cross the world in these wooden... Mm. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and they're very claustrophobic. And the thought of them being just bobbing around on the, the gigantic Atlantic Ocean, it's just extraordinary. Uh, but the ship is never silent. So there's the watch changes every four hours, so there's always somebody awake. Uh, there is the singing... Of the, in, you know, the singing in the shrouds, the cracking of the sails, uh, the rigging, the anchor, the grinding, the uh, slipping, the sl everything mm -hmm. all the time. The creaking of the wood as it expands and shrinks. So it's things like that. And so that was where I put all my efforts into bringing the sea to life. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm glad that people who do know about the sea seem to feel that it feels it's a proper tribute. Yes, as if you've been sailing all your exactly. life. <laughs> yes, because you definitely get that sense that the ships in the novel are, um, and I said this to you, like that they're not, they're more of a character or yes. a sense or, you know, a sort of feeling more than like an object. Exactly. And, you know, because they are taking like these characters. Um, like across these vast seas, it, it is absolutely incredible to think about and, and to think about the fact that even when I step on a boat now, I'm nervous and yeah, even yeah, though yeah. it's completely safe and to think about how long ago this was and how little kind of 
equipment and everything they had to build these incredible like works of art really they are that's so beautifully put they are so beautiful um the sea faring ships of this period of the 16th and 17th century and in fact ship technology didn't change very much from the 14th to the 18th century it's only really when ships start to be built of metal that Mm. there is a significant shift and that was also quite interesting to think about that actually I could look at Nelson's flagship the Victory which is much smaller um, but then I could look at some of the Dutch ships in the Maritime Museum in Amsterdam and essentially they're they're the same they're the same you know things are in the same place yes um, all of that kind of thing so it was very very important and of course uh, the pirate side of things I'd always wanted to write a pirate novel um, ever since I was a little girl I had the Ladybird book of pirates um, <laughs> and in there there were two female pirates just two and I um, was really entranced with them straight away and then was annoyed as a little girl that all of the pirate novels only had boys in them. There were almost no women, you know, women-free zone. And they were very much promoted as boys reading, as if girls didn't like adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been waiting a long time, I'm in my 60s now, to finally write a pirate novel. Um, And it's been really thrilling to do that side of things as well. And also to think that, you know, women can be intimidating. And like, and, and maybe, you know, and that's not to do with stature or height or anything like that. It's to do with skill and intelligence and everything like that. And, um, you know, without spoiling a plot too much, um, Gilles' mother um, is a, all say, unlike, unlikable character. An unlikable character. She is, no, I mean, I, I believe this very strongly. Women um, and men have built the world together. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are strong and capable and always have been and the um, the idea that women are weaker and need it protect is, is mm-hmm. clearly ludicrous we all yeah. it, it's it's an affront to common sense apart from anything else um, it's very important to me therefore that my all of my novels pretty much um, tell stories of unheard or underheard women and they are all pretty much the heroes are women they're the protagonists but the world is made up of lovely women and awful women mm-hmm. and lovely men and awful men. And so it's important to me that they are all on the page. All represented. Absolutely. And, yeah, Gilles's mother is a truly terrible person. Awful. Um, truly <laughs> terrible person. Um, obviously quite fun to write, um, yes. needless to say. Um, and that, that, But that is part of me trying to say, what would everyday life have been like for most people? Mm. And that's the problem if there is an over-attention on just the court or just religious leaders or just the people at the very with all the power because they are 1% of the population and it ignores the real history of everybody else. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, Gilles' mother, I had great fun writing Gilles' mother and her sidekick um, and obviously had great fun writing some of the other characters. Mm-hmm. You know, in adventure stories, uh, there are archetypes up to a point in that there are goodies and baddies Mm -hmm. and the point about adventure fiction is that it has a very traditional uh, narrative structure which is uh, on the one hand beginning middle and end so there is resolution but there is also you know the great um, uh, 1922 pirate novel uh, Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini uh, most people haven't read the novel, but they older people will remember the Errol Flynn film, 1935 Errol Flynn film, um, who made pirates sexy and noble, uh, you know, the high women of the sea. Um, but there's a lovely line in that where um, the, the captain is described as having still some rags of honour. 
And that's the kind of pirate story I wanted to write. The idea that uh, pirates, we think of you know them obviously as being rather vicious and terrible, and it's all about greed and t- buried treasure, and they're mm-hmm. you know terrible, and that th- these things are true. But also the idea of pirates being outside of society and in some respects being more moral than society and a force for good. And that, of course, is within the context of the novel. Louise and her pirate ship, the ghost ship, are disrupting slavish ships. There's def- Yeah, and there's definitely that sense of, like, um, you know, even in Pirates of the Caribbean or, or something like that, There's it's, like, it's the honour among thieves and the fact that, you know, yes, they have a moral code and it goes against society, but it's kind of, it's either, you know, helping like you know sticking to your moral code and helping someone or it's like kind of survival like they're just you know some of them are just trying to survive at the end of the day they're taking from yeah. you but that's because they have the people to exactly. feed exactly that, that's the like thing that. about the highway men and women of the sea but also you know you mentioned pirates of the caribbean and um the kira knightley character elizabeth swan is inspired by the two female pirates that inspired me um bonnie and reed um, and the filmmakers are quite clear about that. Um, but in terms of uh, a pirate ship is a floating republic. It is has its own rules. It's got its own family sense. They are very codified, but they are, it is more democratic than any uh, life would be lived on land. Mm-hmm. And that is the point. You know, if you follow the rules, everybody has a share. And that's that's the point of it. So, and that's of course what Louise creates. She creates her own band of brothers, as it were. Yes. Um, and uh, and that was wonderful writing that. Although I kept losing track of how many people were in the crew, because um, <laughs> I kept being told, you know, you've got or you'd have to have a second lieutenant. I was like, oh no, I've got to think I'm <laughs> another one that I need to another remember. One I need to remember. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, you know, so that was very important to me that Louise is an outsider. Gilles is an outsider. They both have traumatic incidents in their past that have had really huge. Uh, effects on them together at sea they create a different way of living and so it is a novel about disguise about living as yourself about having the courage to be yourself um, from that point of view and of course that's why it's possible at sea and when they go on to dry land all of those things fall away again and they have to go back into well women behave like this men behave like that and as well, like having known Louise and Gilles in those in that bit before they become like or go onto the ghost ship, you know, you can just tell that they are the people who, um, whether it's through like secrets or just attitude, they kind of end up having respect and loyalty. And and you can just you understand why people are loyal to them, which makes the fact that they then have this pirate ship make so much sense because you're like, yes, well if I was on that ship I'd go with them too because you, you can just see how they would bring together that kind of team Great. because well, you've got exactly. that history yeah. with them. Yeah. Which is always so nice to know. But with, you know, I, I can't I can't imagine how much uh information there must be on on pirates or anything but was that was there any sort of tones or or characters or anything that was like hard to uncover through like research that anything really difficult to get the tone of well there are there are a handful of female pirates from different periods of history and i read up on all of them not just bonnie and reed who are the notorious 18th mm-hmm. century pirates that uh, female pirates that most people know but the great irish pirate queen granny o'malley uh, grace o'malley um, the Moroccan pirate queen of about the same period, Saida El Hura, um, the very, very notorious Chinese pirate queen, um, Chang Shi, 
who at the height of her powers had 40,000 pirates under her command. Whoa. She was the most <laughs> successful female pirate ever. Um, so I read all of their stories and what is uh, the, the key thing amongst them, which is different for Bonnie and Reed, but for the rest of them, is that they have either inherited fleets from husbands or fathers, or, as I have given Louise, has a great deal of wealth, so she can buy um, experiences that most women would not be allowed. Mm -hmm. And that's quite important as well. So, um, you know, the research feeds all of this, but Louise and Sheil are themselves. They're not based on anybody. They're, they're just inspired by the fact there were female pirates. Yes, and the fact that this this could have been a possibility. Exactly. Like, while we don't know, that might have happened, Absolutely. which is almost quite a comforting thought yes, exactly. to think that they actually could have been out there or or a form of them could have been out yes, there. Yes, exactly. Um, but I also, I would love to talk to you about uh, Women's Prize for Fiction. Obviously, you mentioned it earlier. You are the founder. And are you currently managing it now still? I, I'm or? the founder director. Um, there's a, a wonderful executive team, the... Uh, director, the executive director is, is Claire Shanahan, uh, who first started working for the prize about 15 years ago in a wow. different capacity, and then we managed to get her back uh, for good, and she, she now runs the prize with a, a wonderful, very, very small, but um, uh, a team, and we have a board of trustees, because the Women's Prize is now a charity, um, and the chair of that is Anna Rafferty, um, who is amazing, and it's a, it's a very uh, good, really great board of trustees. And then I am the founder director of, of the Prize for Fiction and now the Prize for Nonfiction. And what that means is that I um, am involved in all the judging, uh, sort of uh, oversight of the judging. I'm not, a, I'm not a judge and I obviously don't have a voice in that room. Um, I do all the public events and the hosting and the speaking. I chair our, our huge uh, new writing project called Discoveries, which we do with Curtis Brown, Curtis Brown Creative and Audible. Uh, which is a way of providing mentoring and support for writers at the beginning of their careers, however old they are. And it's a competition that runs every year where uh, uh, new writers, they can't be published, they can't have an agent, uh, submit 10,000 words of a novel they're writing. And we announce a shortlist and then a longlist and then a winner and a scholar. And this year we had pretty much 3,000 entries. Wow. Um, and sev I think it's something like 75% of them were from outside London and the South East. Fantastic. Which was fantastic. Not that in any way um, people in London and the South East don't need support as well, but there's less on offer in some parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And all people want is to be able to have a conversation about their writing yeah. and be given advice about where to find a writing course or how to put a, a, a submission letter to an mm -hmm. agent or a publisher together, demystifying the process, exactly what you're doing here on this podcast. Very important. Um, so I do all of those kind of things um, and chair most of the uh, panels that we do in the events. So I'm very much forward-facing and Claire and her team do the work. Oh, fantastic. I swan in and out. Yeah, the, the best kind of job. Best kind of work. Do you get to read a lot of the, you know submissions for I, um, with discoveries obviously I read uh, I, I have a, a judging panel which is uh, the wonderful Anna Davis who's the founder of Curtis Brown Creative uh, and Lucy Morris who is an agent at Curtis Brown because they're, they're, we do it in partnership with them and they're on the panel every year and then we have two um, writers on the panel each year so the judging panel is all, half the same and a, a couple of new people each year so I read those submissions from the point at which we have a long, long list, mm -hmm. so about 30 or so submissions. With the Prize for Fiction, and this will be the same for the Prize for Non-Fiction, which will launch in 2024, um, it will 
I read from the long list onwards. I don't uh, read the submission. I think that would be quite challenging yes. otherwise. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> ever get any writing done. But secondly, um, it's absolutely essential. The reason I think that the Women's Prize is now seen as one of the three uh, major literary prizes in the world, mm. um, along with the Booker and the Pulitzer, is because it is seen by the industry and by readers and by teachers and by um, journalists as having integrity. Absolutely. And the integrity is about... There is no influence on the judges. The judges are completely uh, empowered to make their decisions. There is no other voice that must come into that room. Mm -hmm. And that includes anybody to do with the prize. Um, so I've learnt over the years that it is much better to not have read all of those things. Yes. Um, so that I'm just sitting listening like a punter. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, read from the long list on, onwards because I um, we always do a digital shortlist festival which this year we called Women's Prize Live, where I interview all the shortlisted authors. So obviously, good to uh, know at that, that moment, I need to have read, uh, read the work. Um, but that's great for me because it means I listen to extraordinary, impassioned and wonderful debate from a different group of five judges every year. Um, and then I read the books with their voices in my head. And mm -hmm. that is, that's a real pleasure. Yes, it definitely, you know, makes something like that more special, like even going to an author event or something and listening to them talk about their book and then reading that book after the fact. It just, it makes it such, like the reading so much more special and almost like more interactive because you feel like you're talking to the author as, or like they're reading to you or something. There's, it is just definitely a, a very special way of going about it. So that like must be amazing. And with the nonfiction prize, when does, when do the submissions for that open? Um, it will follow exactly the same pattern as the prize for fiction in that submissions will um, kind of start to be open almost now. Mm -hmm. um, the deadline for submissions is in the autumn um, and then we announce the judging panel after submissions have closed because we observed in the past that some publishers moved books uh, when they saw who was on the judging panel uh, to get them, you know, because they thought, ah, that person's going to particularly like this and they move right. things about and because there has been a proliferation of tiny imprints, um, it's quite complicated managing the number of submissions. The number of submissions mm -hmm. has gone up every single year. We're very uh, keen to have judges who read uh, everything rather than have a pre-screening process because that doesn't lead uh, to uh, better choices, we, yes. we think. I yes. mean, other prices make different decisions and, of course, that's absolutely fine. Uh, so we then will announce our judging panels, both judging panels, in the autumn, probably October, uh, they will all start meeting and uh, be reading, and they will have a meeting to decide the long list in kind of February, a meeting to decide their short list. In both cases, there will be a long list of 16, a short list of six, and then uh, a winner will be decided, and we will announce the long list and the short list probably a week or so apart, so that both get their moment in the sun, mm -hmm. uh, but we will announce both winners on the night at the same time, and the award ceremony is usually in the first week of June. Um, so um, that that will be very exciting, but that's going so to be exciting. a logistical nightmare, trying to manage 10 judges, <laughs> um, you know, 32 long-listed authors, 12 short-listed authors, and then two winners. Um, and it's we're very uh, thrilled that uh, the Charlotte Aitken Trust has sponsored the prize money for the non-fiction uh, prize, and we also have Amazing. substantial private anonymous donation for a one-off uh, to get help get the prize going, which is fabulous. And they will commission a, a, a little work of art, a statue called the Charlotte, and that will go alongside the Bessie, which is what the Prize for Fiction winner uh, receives. 
which was also part of an anonymous donation uh, when I was setting up the prize uh, all those years ago. And, of course, the Fiction Prize is sponsored by Audible and by Baileys. And then we have um, an ever-growing group of partners and Prize Circle patrons and friends of the prize because we are a charity now and we don't have a big trust fund or a foundation behind us Mm -hmm. like some like the Booker do or, um, you know, the Wolfson History Prize, for example, does. And so we are, in order to do all the work we do, and particularly our charitable purpose, we need to be fundraising all the time. Definitely. Um, And that takes a lot of time. So we are encouraging everybody, even if it's only to donate £10. If everybody who came to an event donated £10, you already have the equivalent of another whole sponsor. Yeah. You know, so it's very important it's um, that, that we do that because we want to spend all the money we raise on projects to do with literacy and mm-hmm. reading and writing and mentoring and books and on the authors, yeah. uh, not on uh, big buildings and big, yeah. big teams and infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so people can be confident when they give money to the Women's Prize that it, it's going towards the work. Going back into arts and literature, which always, always needs the help as well, you know, and it, it's so good to um, encourage things like that. We've just teamed up actually with a South African publisher called Blackbird, and we were talking to one of our authors from Blackbird about it, and we're just sort of repackaging and publishing her novel. And um, she was saying that she, the whole reason that she wrote this book was just because she won. A competition with this publisher they like set her up at a like writer's retreat for three weeks and she wrote this book essentially wow. in those three weeks and then it was obviously a lot of editing but every day she got to put her work forward it got assessed by someone you know all of this help that you just would never have had the opportunity to get had you just been at home like working That's on it right. by yourself and if we want which i think we all agree a diversity of voices being mm-hmm. published I mean, everybody having the opportunity to be published, if they feel they've got a story to tell, then we must be better as an industry in not only demystifying, but providing support for people who don't know somebody (laughs) whose mum works in publishing or whose dad works in book selling. No, we we must make it more easy at entry level to start to get the advice. And of course, that's, you know, one of the things that the Discoveries Programme with the Women's Prize, it's so important. And of course, as we go forward, we will hope to have the equivalent of discoveries for non-fiction as well. Um, But there are only so many hours in the day. Yes, definitely. And only so many people that that can work on it until you've got a room full of too many people reading. (laughs) But with, um, you know, obviously with you've got uh, Moss on a Monday, which I I have (laughs) love listening to and and seeing what your recommendations are, which you're honestly, you're ruining my TBR because (laughs) it's just getting longer and longer. But do you think that will be even harder now, kind of picking out... Um, books when you've got a, now a non-fiction women's no, prize I, list? No, because one of the things about Moss on a Monday is that, not that uh, uh, advertisers have been throwing uh, money at me in, in the slightest, but I made the decision that this was not something that I was going to be investing a huge amount of time trying to sell mm-hmm. or get people to pay me or subscribe to or whatever. It was just going to be me as somebody who's been in the word minds, as Margaret Atwood puts it, for a very long time, sharing every month, two non-fiction and two fiction books that I like. It's not about what's coming out next. Sometimes it is, because Mm -hmm. I've just read, you know, if I've read a new proof and I want to talk about it, I I know that it can make a difference talking about a book before publication. But mostly it's me uh, reaching for my bookshelf and saying, I really love this. So for July's Moss on a Monday, I did a pirate special, (laughs) obviously, uh, in honour of uh, the publication of The Ghost Ship. And also because, truthfully, I had very little time to do any reading... uh, 
broader than uh, broader than that. And so I did all pirate novels. Oh, amazing. Um, and, you know, one of them, of course, was uh, 1883 Treasure Island. Um, a which, classic. A classic. You know, <laughs> this is absolutely fine. Um, so that's the thing about Moss on a Monday is that it is, it really is me walking around my house and saying, oh, God, I remember, I love that book. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that. Um, and it's, it's a bit of fun. And I've noticed, you know, each month there's just a few more people listening and joining mm-hmm. in and it's been I've been very encouraged that younger people like you seem to have really engaged with this because I'm not trying to capture data or know anything it, it honestly is me in my house yes so I, I don't know who's watching and I don't know uh, you know if people email um, you know respond to it then I do know but otherwise I don't know until somebody says something so I'll, I will just keep doing that because it's a bit of fun for me. I think as well, is, um, I watched your uh, recent non-fiction one as well and um, there was books in there that were from like 2020 or 2021 and it's it's nice being reminded of books that you might have missed at the time because, you know, especially working in publishing, it's all about like what's coming out next and, and what, what have we, you know, what have we got, what's, what's coming out in July, what's coming out in August and it's like, well, actually, two years ago there was a fantastic book that came out and it may have been underrated, slipped under the radar or, you know, you may have just missed it for some reason. And for someone to put it back in front of you and say, don't forget this book exists and it's fantastic, is great. It's really important because I think publishing is, I mean, it's it, it always was, but it's very frontless led now. And also, it's understandable, but obsessed with debuts, mm-hmm. but then doesn't provide career support after that. It's always yeah. about the new thing. And that isn't sustainable. Uh, it really isn't sustainable. And I remember very early on with the Women's Prize, the great and much-missed Andrea Levy. She was long-listed for her second novel, and we got to know each other and became friends, so she then was a judge for me. And she was at a position in her publishing career where she'd published uh, a few novels, and they'd done okay, but not terribly well. Mm. And she later learned that when her, her editor fought tooth and nail to get her publishing company to allow her to buy Small Island because they were saying, well, you know, her other books haven't done really well enough. And, of course, Small Island became one of the great classic novels of the 20th century, 21st century, I suppose. And so that, when I was in publishing, there was a sense of you take an author on and you stick with them. And sadly, that has gone. Mm. And publishing needs to rethink that because there's only so many debuts that people can cope with. Yeah. Actually, it is about sustaining a writer's career, not mm. just the first time. And so that's why Moss on a Monday is important to me, because, as you say, most people, if people are passionate about an author, uh, you know, I'm publishing The Ghost Ship um, in July, and there are lots of my readers who will buy it in the first week, obviously, and that's yes. what, you know, what, what we hope for. Yeah. But otherwise, people don't all go, oh, this book comes out on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Normal readers see something they fancy in a bookshop and think, oh, give that a go. That is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's about the ecology of publishing and how we manage it in a slightly less frantic way. Yes, and rather than encouraging, like, you know, sort of one-hit wonders mm-hmm. and having someone have a fantastic book and then rather than, like you said, looking for the next big thing, like, stick with them and exactly. see see what else they, they have on offer because so many authors will write, you know, one book and then write something completely different, which is just as great. Like the author of Yellowface, her novels before that were nothing like Yellowface, but all have been majorly successful. And if they'd just done the Poppy War series and left her at that, 
they would have been missing out on some That's incredible right. books. That's right. I mean, let writers be writers. Yeah. You know, not marketeers. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And, um, I mean, obviously, we're very excited about, uh, you know, all the non-fiction coming out, but um, obviously, you um, with Moss on a Monday, you did the for non-fiction, but a big kind of topic online is sort of how you keep up with reading and I think you know lots of people now especially on social media will kind of show like I've read 56 of 100 books this year and then all of a sudden people are panicking like I haven't read enough books this year and is there sort of any advice you'd have for people in terms of managing time or, or reading? Yeah, stop doing that. <laughs> I mean that's the thing reading is a pleasure. Yeah. It should be a pleasure. Uh, read when you fancy don't when you don't. It's not a competition. Mm. Um, and I think uh, you know, occasionally I will post a picture of all the proofs I've been sent, um, which, you know, there's a lot. Yes, I can um, imagine. But I, I don't ever post, well, these are all the books I've read, because I yeah. think that it does, it puts reading back into the, uh, it's worthy, and you're a better person. We all think, we can all see, that people who read have better empathy, have a better knowledge of the world, are more open uh, to a different points of views. We all know this. Is, again, mm. it's common sense. But the idea that somebody is slightly better than somebody else because they've read 12 books this month rather than 10, or indeed none, you know, let's just remember that reading is for pleasure. Of course it's for education, of course it's for learning, of course it's for all of these things, but in the end it should be gorgeous every mm -hmm. night, if you can, to curl up in bed and read a book. You should look forward to you it. You should look forward to it rather than it being another... Uh, my husband has a brilliant phrase, debt to the future. Another Aww, thing that's, that's on your list that you haven't done. Yes, that's so true. Because it, and you know, I think a lot of people do say at the same time, you know, don't, please don't compare yourself to, to me reading. Uh, but then they'll show, oh, yes, I read like 11 books. And, and, you know, you can't help yourself, especially on social media, but compare. So it is just, it's nice to just think, like, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll read when I, yeah. and you, yeah, you want to look forward to it and you don't want to think of it as a chore that's because right. that's, that just, yeah, it takes all the fun and the love out of it. Um, and I was actually, I was going to ask you as well, um, kind of if you could change one thing about the industry, what would it be? And like the, your favourite thing about the industry as well. Uh, my, what, if I could change one thing, mm -hmm. and I've been bleating on about this for many years and clearly nobody else thinks it's a good idea. Um, I think that there should be a ghost written chart uh, in order to give more attention to non-fiction. Uh, there are some weeks, particularly towards Christmas, where in the non-fiction hardback bestsellers and the paperback bestsellers, but particularly the hardback bestsellers, um, the names that are on the book jackets are all of authors who have not written the book. In other words, they're not authors. Mm. And that is fine. You know, this is great. Cookery, uh, health, sports people, absolutely great. But just think of it like this. If there was a ghost-written chart... And all of those books, the, the cookery and the ghost-written biographies and things, were in that chart. You'd get ten amazing works of non-fiction mm -hmm. that often don't get anywhere near the charts. And why does that matter? A lot of people make choices based on what's in the chart. Mm -hmm. So I think that we could be supporting serious uh, narrative non-fiction. And there's a great deal of wonderful writing better by giving it more space. And when you look at the New York Times, they do that. Interesting. And it makes a world of difference. Uh, so that would be the one thing that I would change. And I, I, I think ghostwriters are incredible. Yeah. And I think it's absolutely legitimate 
uh, when you have somebody, a celebrity, who has helped to write a book with somebody else, I just don't think that they should be in the same place because I feel that we are missing out on a great deal of history, psychology, politics, social policy that could be given a bit more spotlight. So yes. that's, that's the thing I'd do. In terms of um, the thing I love about the industry, it is, I still believe, um, and I, you know, obviously I'm involved in other areas of the arts, publishing is a generous industry. In the end, everybody's in it because they love reading and they love words and they love books. And for the most part, people want to support each other. Most writers, not all, there are one or two exceptions, but most writers believe that if somebody reads one book, they'll read another book. And although we all, when our books are out, are jostling to be number one, of course <laughs> we always want to be number one. Um, but at the same time, we all feel we're part of a shared project. And I think publishers work incredibly hard, agents work incredibly hard, librarians, God bless them, working incredibly hard in very difficult circumstances as uh, our cultural life is wrecked by these uh, uh, scoundrels that have been in charge for 13 years. Um, and I think... That makes it stand out, mm -hmm. uh, that publishing people help other people out. Yeah. Uh, they want, they realise that if one thrives, everybody thrives. And that isn't, I regret to say, necessarily what you find in television or film. Mm -hmm. And it's so true, it's just, it's like the biggest community of just supportive and, yeah, generous people. But we must continue the work that many of the big publishers in particular are doing to diversify the workforce. Um, it that is a thing that it is often seen as a, a quite a narrow band of people working within publishing and uh, having more support for publishers outside of London, having a, a much more representative group of people working particularly in London. This mm -hmm. is crucial for publishing to thrive in the 21st century. It must it must modernize and move forward as well, but yeah. it mustn't lose its heart. Yes, I mean it's it is so London centric and it, and you know readers aren't London centric and they're everywhere writers, I say yeah, yes, and not London writer yes. exactly and so yeah it definitely is true you know all of and like you know Waterstones having their flagship here I totally understand like it's it's the capital yes, and the capital city matters and we shouldn't be uh, knocking London yeah um, a capital city uh, being a wonderful city in London is this is really really important but that it's always this idea that there is an assumption that if you promote one thing, you are attacking something else. Mm -hmm. You're not. It's just about supporting other things as well, yeah. not taking away from London. That's what it should be. And just growing as well. You know, like, there, there are so many events going on in London for authors, which is fantastic. But, you know, we would love to organise more events across the country because we know we have readers there and we would love to, like, get involved with them. It, it is just kind of like doing the push yes. and making the move and and that is something obviously we would love to do as well so yeah completely completely understand that so i guess uh well one last question before we get on to the biscuit review which is a very difficult one but if you could pick one book in the last year that you would recommend or say maybe is your favorite book what would it be one book in the last year well this is obviously very difficult because i therefore can't um I risk offending all of my friends. Of course. <laughs> but actually, I think it's relatively straightforward for me uh, that the winner of the 2023 Women's Prize for Fiction was a novel called Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Uh, Barbara won back in 2010 for um, The Lacuna. And, um, and I've known Barbara on and off since then. What I was really struck by, I do think that Demon Copperhead is a work of genius. Mm -hmm. There are books that are really extraordinary that come along not very often. 
and all of the shortlisted authors, who of course were disappointed not to win, but all of them tweeted or sent a message to the effect, I'm disappointed not to win, but you cannot mind losing to Barbara Kingsolver's Dean yeah. Copperhead. And so actually, for once, I think it is an easy thing. It's um, I'm not a, a Dickens specialist. I'm not a passionate about Dickens like some people are. Um, I looked at it and I thought, oh, well, you know, be interesting to see and then I read it and it's it's quite extraordinary so th- that's that's the best book of the year that I've read that you're the second person to name that book as the Good. as the best book Fiona Valpy also said that that was her favorite book and my mum if that means anything also absolutely, but, but I, both, both Fiona and your mum are letting me down because I would like them to say the ghost ship oh, by Kate Moss well so once they've read that yeah, I'd as, like that oh, to, that will to change as, as soon as they've read it but uh, and, until they've read that that is their, cur- yeah, so their I, current I, I favorite am, Absolutely not set going up against uh, Demon Copperhead in any way whatsoever. I think they, they sit in very different parts of the market. Yes, definitely. But it's, def- it's you know, I've now been given it and I'm so looking forward to reading it. But um, yes, OK, fantastic. Well, shortbreads are waiting, so we'll give those a try and come back. OK, so we've just tried, let me get the name right, Patterson's Shortbread Fingers. What, what were your thoughts on these, Kate? Well... They were. It's okay. I don't. Mm. I'm not a big biscuit eater at all. The only uh, biscuits that I really like are shortbread. Okay. So I'm quite a connoisseur of shortbread, and they're quite nice. Mm-hmm. But they are not as good as Walkers. Yes. That's that's it really. It's so um, true. You know, and it looks like the packaging is very similar. They're exactly the same shape. Um, but there's just something a bit bicarbonate about them mm-hmm. and not quite as buttery. Not as buttery, not I know. Buttery. It's, it's the butter that makes it, it's isn't the butter it? Is the point it's got to melt in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, I looked in uh, the Sainsbury's by my flat, the um, Sainsbury's down the road and the Tesco here. There wasn't a Walker's inside. Well, there you go. An See, abomination, really. Everybody knows that Walker's <laughs> that is they're best. the best. Yes. So either they've sold out or they're just not stocking them, which yeah. would just be wrong. It was so wrong. So if you could give it a rating out of 10, what would you Well, the thing is, I, I never like doing that. Really. Um, but, <laughs> okay. Um, but I suppose I would give it a 6. A 6, okay. Yes, yes I I think... Yes, I think I'd put it at a 6. Maybe a 7 at a push, because I think it's a nice summer biscuit cause it's got no chocolate on it to melt. But, <laughs> again, it's just... It's okay. It's But, you know, a biscuit is a biscuit, and I do love biscuits. Oh, well, so. there you are. You that makes sense. <laughs> and butter as well, but, you know. I love butter. That's right. But yeah. I, I'm a savoury person rather than a sweet person. So, um, yes, it's not, it's not normally what I would go for a biscuit jar. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been amazing talking to you, and good luck with the non-fiction prize thank next you, year. Thank you, Olivia. It's been lovely to meet you. And that's all for this week. It was an absolute pleasure having Kate in the office to discuss the publishing industry and her wonderful new novel, The Ghost Ship, which I absolutely adored. And it's officially out now. Thank you for listening. And as always, if you share our episodes on social media, don't forget to tag us at legend underscore times on Instagram and at legend underscore times underscore on Twitter. Tune in again next week to listen to the absolutely delightful Holly Ringland talk all about her incredible new novel coming out on the 24th of July, the Seven Skins of Esther Wilding. Not only is Esther Wilding already a bestseller in Australia, but Holly's first novel, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, is now a major prime TV show featuring Sigourney Weaver, which is coming out this August. There will also be a little teaser of the Esther Wilding audiobook at the end of the episode, so give us a follow and make sure you don't miss out. Until then, have a great Monday, everyone.